0: Hello and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. Well, hello, I'm Dr. Bobby Pritch, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And today we have two guests with us. We have Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, and also the President of Mayo Clinic Labs. Bill, thank you as always for being here with us today. Well, Uh, I I know you're, you're kind of part of the show now, right? And then our other guest is Dr. Brad Karen, who is the chair of the Division of the Clinical Core Laboratory Services at Mayo Clinic and has also done a lot of work with point-of-care testing uh, throughout his career, but now specifically with COVID. So Brad, thank you so much for joining us as well.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Pritt. I'm thrilled to be here and hopefully shed a few words of intelligent comment and wisdom (laughs) wisdom on today's subject.
0: Yeah, well, you know, this is a really timely topic because Bill and I have been talking about this point of care tests are now more widely available. We've been talking a lot about the holidays and how people can protect themselves when people are getting together, family gatherings and with friends. And the topic has come up, what about these point of care at home tests that people can use? So we thought this would be a great topic for today. Um, So thank you again for joining us to talk about your experience with them.
1: Sure. I'm happy to do so. So again, I'm Brad Karen, and I um, have been the director or co-director of our point-of-care testing program at Mayo Clinic Rochester for 18 years now, so that my focus in my career is on point-of-care testing and its uses and limitations. Dr. Maurice asked me to lead a group within the Mayo Enterprise to evaluate rapid and point-of-care tests, molecular tests, antigen tests. We'll go through that for COVID-19. And so happy to share my experience here today.
0: Well, that's great, Brad. So you kind of alluded to this, but maybe we should just start with the basics since we have a pretty diverse audience and some people have more background in this area than others. So maybe you could start by telling us about the main types of at-home or point-of-care tests that are available and their main differences.
1: Sure. The vast majority of home tests available are antigen tests. And so antigen tests are testing for a protein or antigen that SARS-CoV-2 virus makes not testing for the virus itself. The antigen tests have uh, clear uses and utility. They're generally analytically less sensitive, so you need to have more virus in your nasopharynx, more copies per mil or, or a higher density of virus uh, to make enough antigen to be detected by an antigen test. They're g- generally very highly specific, so if you do test positive, it's quite likely that you are infected and certainly Any positive antigen test should be followed up with a laboratory, generally nucleic acid amplification test to demonstrate viral particles and to seek proper care from there. The other type of home test, which is much less commonly available, are nucleic acid amplification tests. Uh, So polymerase chain reaction being one form of those, although there are others, and actually the others are more commonly used for the home test. These detect the virus itself. So they're detecting pieces of RNA that are part of the virus. The key difference there, again, is the word amplification in that sentence. So these tests are going to take a a small number of pieces of RNA of the virus and be able to amplify them to create a signal. So they're going to be more sensitive, be able to detect smaller amounts of virus. There are a handful that are approved to be used at home. Some of the benefits then would be they're going to detect lower amounts of virus, be more sensitive. They're going to be more expensive. It simply costs more to make these. Because it costs more to make these, they're simply not as available. So they're simply harder to find a home nucleic acid amplification test. And in our experience with a number of these rapid or point of care amplification tests, they do tend to produce false positives, they're positive when there's really not virus there, a little more frequently than an antigen test. So I think the vast majority of home tests that are in use that will be available will be antigen tests, but we do need to remember that nucleic acid and amplification tests are also out there.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a really important caveat because we talk about people using these tests before they want to get together with their friends and family. And then what happens if you have a false positive test? I mean, I guess it's good to be rather safe than sorry, but that does have some pretty important implications if you're just about ready to hop on a plane to go see someone.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I think what, and again, the use of antigen tests and the recommended use and the demonstrated use has evolved over time. And I think what is generally most favorable about using antigen test wide scale and home use as a both personal health and public health measure is that over many studies and over time, they produce fewer false positives. And it's certainly not that you can't have a false positive. Very early on, the Center for Disease Control, CDC, actually did studies showing even when healthcare workers use these antigen tests, there are things they can do wrong that would cause either a false negative or false positive. But in large studies, that false positive rate is low, certainly in the order of of one or two percent. And so that has led to wider acceptance of these may be quite valuable because if you get a positive, chances are you you will need to seek care and get a lab, usually a PCR test, and it minimizes that. Yeah, I didn't go to my family's Christmas gathering because it was a false positive, but certainly, it can happen. You Need to be aware that they're not perfect.
2: A couple of questions come to mind, Brad. First, you know, you and I have worked together on this. We were on a committee, a Mayo committee, kind of over point-of-care testing, gosh, like 15 years ago. And I just wonder, in your mind, and you've been with your career, I mean, it seems like there's just a lot more interest in at-home testing and point-of-care testing than there ever has been before. And that's a lot of the confusion. I was just wondering if, if you feel the same thing. And then also the question people have. Is at some point we're going to get through COVID, and do you think that this is something that people kind of expect going forward that we'll have more at-home testing, particularly you know to see if people are sick and going to work or school or whatever? Yeah, I, I do, Bill. I, I think we've had kind of a, a
1: watershed moment here with home testing. I think there's always been interest, and in the field of point of care is expanding rapidly. And then, you know, parallel with that, the field of point of care testing within the hospital or health system is expanding rapidly. And and along with that, there was a very slow expansion into home testing. and, And there were cost and regulatory barriers that I think sort of kept that closed or there was sort of a gate on it with cost and regulatory barriers. And with the COVID pandemic, you might say silver lining maybe, is that there were, of course, emergency use approvals and rapid regulatory studies and the government gave out or or did grants for manufacturers to speed up development. And so I think we've seen a kind of watershed moment where it's been shown it can be done. You can go through the regulatory process, you can mass produce these relatively reliably and get these devices into the hands of people. And so we're going to see a lot more home testing. We're still going to have a lot of these issues to work through about the analytic and clinical sensitivity. The specificity over time, so as these devices are produced batch after batch, lot after lot, we know in point-of-care world that sometimes they'll get a bad lot. And when you're in the hospital, you usually have means to detect that when you're shipping them to people's homes, obviously can imagine the challenge and the training. So you and I, from our old days of that committee that oversaw our point-of-care testing program, even when we're training nurses and respiratory therapists, healthcare providers to do this testing, It's not the main part of their job, and we try to teach them the limitations and the right time to use these tests. And now imagine the challenge where we're talking about the whole general public. And so it's really exciting, and I think we have moved to a watershed moment, but it's an exciting and perhaps risky time and and understanding how do we guide the best use of home testing because it will take guidance from experts, and we in pathology laboratory, those of us who run point-of-care programs, our expertise will be needed to understand what how we best utilize these technologies.
2: A couple of things to keep in mind are there's now the manufacturing capability globally for these tests has really grown. So I think that will be part of what drives it. And people are gonna be much more used to administering them to themselves. I think back to when I was a resident and working in the urgent care clinic on Thanksgiving and with holiday weekend and wine was out the door people wanna make sure they didn't have strep throat before they went on a holiday. So I think the demand is there. But I think the other flip side of that, to your point, uh, Dr. Karen, is how much work we did. I remember we had to have dashboards and this was for nurses and trained professionals that were administering these tests from a quality perspective to make sure they were trained and knew how to do it. And so I think that will be the other piece of this is how do we make sure that in the manufacturing, people know what they're doing and they're getting good tests. So I'm sure this is something the FDA will be interested in as well as they go forward. So yeah, it's interesting times now and into the future.
0: Brad, you raised some important questions. How are we gonna be using these? What role will the clinical lab play? And I guess one of the most important things is just understanding how these tests perform. And so I thought this was a nice segue into the study that you recently performed where you actually tried to answer that question of how well do these tests perform compared to a a gold standard test, for example, like a PCR test. So do you wanna tell us a little bit about your study and, and what you were looking for?
1: Sure. So we conducted a study to compare the analytical sensitivity and specificity of four different rapid antigen tests that could be used in the antigen tests that could be used in the home environment. And, you know, there are now dozens of tests on the market. So ideally, you could study many more. But but the challenge is, again, the major clinical studies that have looked at the population use of an antigen test suggest that they're roughly the same. The challenge is you cannot directly compare the clinical sensitivity, the likelihood of someone testing positive if they're infected, in a head-to-head manner between two tests because each of the tests require generally you swab both sides of your nose and you need another swab for a reference lab test and by that point you've kind of taken up all the virus. So you can't do a clinical study or population study to directly compare two tests. So that relies on these laboratory studies of analytical sensitivity and specificity. So that's what we did with four antigen tests. We deliberately picked two lateral flow tests and lateral flow tests are the, like a pregnancy test. You swab your nose. If there's antigens there, you put it into a buffer and that antigen diluted into the buffer passes by an antibody on the cartridge. And it sticks to, if the antigen's there, it sticks to the antibody and then a chemical reaction makes a line on the test. So like a pregnancy test, if the line appears, you're positive. So those are by far the most common type of tests because they don't require a special reader or device. You just get the kit itself and a swab and can do the test. So we use two lateral flow antigen tests and we compare them to two fluorescence and immunoassays. And fluorescence immunoassays, there's an amplification mechanism to get the signal amplified through fluorescence. And so with influenza and other infectious diseases, they've been shown to be more sensitive than lateral flow. So we want to understand for COVID, are our, our FIAs, fluorescence immunoassays, more sensitive than lateral flows? So we studied two of each representative test, and we found, yes, the fluorescence immunoassays were significantly more sensitive than lateral flows. Some of the fluorescence immunoassays could detect when there was virus present even less than 50,000 copies per mil, and 50,000 copies per milliliter sounds like a big number, but that's actually very, very little virus when you're Early-stage infections, you'll have millions of copies per milliliter in your nose, but even at very low levels, 50,000 copies per milliliter, the fluorescent amino acid test could detect about half the time, even at those very, very low viral levels. The lateral flows were less sensitive, and so that was one of the first studies with SARS-CoV, again, the similar studies had been done with influenza and other viruses, but one of the first studies with SARS-CoV-2 to demonstrate that. But the most surprising finding was that among the two lateral flow studies we studied and devices we studied, and we only studied two lateral flow methods, there was a significant difference in analytical sensitivity between the two lateral flow tests. And for one of them, it was much better at detecting antigen when there was still a small amount of virus, but here we were looking at somewhere between 50,000 and 200,000 copies per mil. So again, those sound like big numbers. They are getting to be bigger numbers and more concerning amounts of virus present that we don't know. Maybe you could be infectious, maybe you're not. And the the two lateral flow devices were significantly different in their sensitivity in that range. At very high levels, over about 1.5 million or 2 million copies per mil, all of the four antigen tests we studied were effective. And so looking at, okay, what does this mean for people who are at home and may be using a home test, it's very likely gonna be a lateral flow test, the vast majority are lateral flow tests. Well, it means that again, the use case is when you're very early after you have symptoms, one, two, three days after you develop symptoms, you're probably gonna have millions of copies per milliliter of virus and most antigen tests are in fact gonna detect it and it be, that's why the use case is there but we are relying on people to understand, well, when did my symptoms start and when should I test and maybe I wait, got sick over the weekend, but I waited till the next Friday and to worry because now I'm going to visit my grandparents and it's been six, seven, eight days. Now we're getting to a point where you can have a lot less virus in your nose and, and so we're getting to the point where this difference in analytical sensitivity in antigen tests could be important. It was a surprising finding. And again, we only studied two lateral flow devices. So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. I don't wanna say don't use these tests, they have value. But we in the the community that does these studies, the point of care testing community, infectious disease, laboratory medicine communities, I think we have more work to do to understand are there better or worse lateral flow tests out there, our study said there are, and what are the real limitations in terms of amount of virus it can detect, and then translating that into, okay, if you're within two or three days of having symptoms, there are very high probability of detecting virus, but if you're six, eight, 12 days after you develop symptoms with one type of test or another, you're just not as likely to detect it and therefore shouldn't sort of take comfort or act on a negative result at that point. That was the end result of our study is a lot more questions, but I think we were surprised to find such a difference in analytical sensitivity between two different lateral flow tests that both could be used in the home environment.
2: It is really interesting, right? And I think it will speak to how probably this field will evolve over time. And we are still dealing with emergency use authorization for these tests and you know, will standards develop? Will there be a certain threshold that tests will have to meet? Those are all things that will have to be answered over time. I think to your point, Dr. Karen, is just people understanding some of the limitations of the tests. They're not perfect, particularly if you're asymptomatic. You know, you have to take everything into consideration when you're using them at home in terms of do you have symptoms or not? If so, when did you have them? And also what you're using them for. If the people you're visiting or want to spend time with are, are at higher risk, you have to take that into account too. The other thing that comes to mind, I think for both, all of us here, is the fact of the matter is that although this testing will be going out to the homes and to other places, actually for laboratory medicine professionals, it's more important than ever that we stay engaged because we understand how the tests work and we understand how to look at their effectiveness for different scenarios. And so the knowledge that we have around how to use tests to make decisions in our lives is actually something that's needed now more than ever, even if the tests are done at more and more different locations than just a hospital or an urgent care center.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point though. And that's something we've touched on a little bit before as physicians and scientists that specialize in laboratory medicine, we know the tests probably better than many other professions. And so we have an important role to play in guiding how these tests should be used. And Brad, I mean, of course, you're going to be probably using some of these tests or similar tests at some of the point of care settings that you oversee, like doctor's offices, small clinics, et cetera.
1: Both of you raise great points that we understand the limitations of these tests. We do the studies define which tests are appropriate in a given setting, how to use them. And then we understand user errors. So again, we actually can and, and do study, okay, what are the most likely types of errors that would be made and how do we mitigate that? And that certainly is something we share with the manufacturers. They have to error-proof their tests as best they can. But to do that, we need to give the manufacturers feedback. I can hear the types of errors we're seeing. And those are all things that we do as laboratory medicine professionals, that we have that responsibility. It gets more challenging when use is more widespread in the home. But I think that just highlights the need not to just say, okay, now a couple dozen tests have EUA approval for home use, we're done, our job is over. Our job is just beginning. We need to study the types of errors and how to prevent those errors and the use cases and publish that information, work with manufacturers. And I think, as Bill said, there will be standards being set on error proofing, on analytical sensitivity and specificity. And we need to be at the forefront of those studies and those conversations nationally and globally.
0: Well, Brad, this is such an important topic. And, you know, especially with the holidays that we're in the midst of and people getting together, I guess, just in our last little bit of time that we have left, do you have any advice, things that you've probably already touched on, but maybe we should just reiterate again, what would your advice be for the general public and consumers in using some of these tests that they can now buy at their local drugstore?
1: I have my adult children now home for the holidays, and we did not do any at-home testing for, we did not do rapid testing for them, but my advice is understand the best use of an at-home test is going to be they're very sensitive in those first few days after symptom onset. So if you were planning to have somebody into your home and they call a few days before they're going to come to your home and say, I have a cough, I have a sore throat, I'm having trouble breathing or have a symptom of a respiratory illness, the at-home test is going to be very likely to detect virus if it's there. And certainly a positive, because there are a few false positives, should be acted on. It would be a good idea if somebody tests positive with an at-home test that they should not come. Certainly seek a laboratory test to confirm that, and they're easier, a much better access, fortunately, in most parts of the country, not all, to the laboratory test that maybe you don't have to disrupt your whole plan, but it don't come until you can get that confirmation. And again, a lot of people would say, even if you're not symptomatic, I want you to do an at-home test. Again, that relies on the fact that there are a few false positives. And so again, that can be add, add extra security or to your gathering for the holidays. But the large studies have shown that among asymptomatic populations in general, the tests are somewhere between maybe 30 and 60% sensitive so 30 to 60% of the time they'll detect virus so they're not great so you don't want to use an at home test as your only decision about your holiday gathering in my own family we've of course my adult children they're vaccinated they've had their booster and that's most important and what we've done personally is we ask them in the seven to ten days before they're going to come home, limit their exposures. Don't go to that indoor concert or that large indoor gathering. Be, you know, those sort of common sense. Be vaccinated, get your booster, limit your exposures, are are probably going to be very important. But at home testing can add to that. Um, you just have to understand, you know, if you're using an at home test as your only basis of whether it's safe for someone to visit a person in your family who's at risk. For severe COVID nineteen, you know that's probably not ideal way to use them. It can be a part of that decision, but common sense things, vaccination boosters, limiting exposures in the seven to ten days before a gathering are going to be certainly incredibly important as well.
2: Yeah, all great points, Brad. And uh, just goes back to it's just another piece of information. You have to use a lot of other things in terms of staying safe and making decisions about what's safe for you or not. And the reality too is that. You know, there are, we're seeing influenza coming back and other viruses. So if you really feel ill, it might be a good year to, as tough as it is, because we, so we've already gone through one holiday season where we haven't been together, but just to really be mindful and thoughtful about how you do things before you go. And when you go, use the test to help, but you have to take the big picture into, into account. So thanks a lot for the really great advice. Bobby, I kick it over to you. Well, I guess we're kind of need to wrap up and say happy holidays to everybody. Yeah.
0: I know. This is great advice, great timing. And yeah, we just, again, want to say to our our listeners, our viewers, that it's just been such a pleasure being with you this year and wishing you all a really happy and safe holiday, period.
2: Yeah, everyone, stay happy, stay safe. Let's have a prosperous and joyful 2022. Uh, you know, I do think we'll have a lot to talk about in testing if some of the models are true. Here, we could see a lot of these tests. The hard thing in the early part of 2022 might actually be getting a hold of one. That's where some of the numbers are going, unfortunately. But again, Brad, thank you. This Zoom call makes me think about how, how blessed I am to work in a place like Mayo Clinic. I've had the chance to work with both of you for so long and learn so much from both of you. And now I'm glad we're able to share it in this format as well. So happy holidays to both of you. Merry Christmas and happy new year.
0: Thank you. Thanks again, Brad.
1: Yeah, thanks both of you for the opportunity. And yeah, everyone have a wonderful holiday season and very happy new year.